thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Uh, we get to, to continue to plow our way through a sermon series this morning that we began a few weeks ago that's going to carry us through the end of May, uh, a series that centered on the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel account. So you get some of those, those famous declarations, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the good shepherd, and so forth and so on. All of those statements meant to tell us something about who Jesus is. Um, everyone has their own take on the answer to that question. Some people think Jesus was a good teacher. Some people think Jesus was a wise philosopher. Some people think Jesus was a prophet. Um, even those of us who declare Jesus to be God in the flesh oftentimes will try to soften him or, or shape him into our image in some, some sort of way. And so the question that we're really after in this series is this. Who does Jesus say he is? Who is Jesus according to Jesus? Um, that, that as we get a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what that means for us, it, it actually refines our worship. We were talking about this in our partnership course just yesterday morning that, um, that there's this reality that uh, when you become a Christian, you see, you see God in, in some sense, but, but it's almost like this kind of funhouse mirror version of God. You know, you, you stand in front of a funhouse mirror at a carnival and your hips are a little wider than they really are in real life. Your shoulders may be a little broader, uh, your face misshapen. It's still you, but it's a, it's a misshapen form of you. And the same is true oftentimes of our understanding of who God is. And, and as we uh, get a clearer picture of who God is, our worship is actually based on Reality. I've, I've thrown out the example before that if I told you, you know, that uh, I adore my blonde-haired, blue-eyed wife, if you'd never met her, you'd think that that was a really doting thing to say. But if you had met her, you'd know that that was problematic because she doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. That, that, that may be emotionally driven, but it's not rooted in truth. And, and the same thing with respect to God. We want to understand better who he is, his attributes, his characteristics, um, and, and the implications of that for our lives. Because as we do, our emotions, our affections uh, toward him are actually rooted in the reality of who he is so that our worship is based on truth. And so that's part of what we're after in this series John records his entire gospel account in order to uh, help us understand the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? John says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, These things are written, including the very passage that we're going to look at this morning in John's account, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so if you come in this morning, you're unsure of who Jesus is, this is a great book of the Bible to camp out in. And we're going to continue to do that as a church for the next few weeks. And you're welcome to join us in that as we continue to unpack one by one each of these I am statements of Jesus, each functioning as a, a facet of this multifaceted jewel that as you spin it, you see a new facet, something unique about Jesus and what that means for us. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to encounter a couple of Jesus's I am statements that are deeply interconnected. I am the door of the sheep. We'll look at that this morning. And I am the good shepherd, both giving this sheep shepherd sort of word picture. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. First 10 verses of chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. you can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a uh, difficult translation uh, to understand. You can take one of those Bibles as the church's gift to you. This is a, a really strange declaration. My guess would be that 
Nobody has a coffee mug sitting in your cabinet at home that says, I'm the door of the sheep. Or a bumper sticker on your car that says, I'm the door of the sheep. There there are other I am statements that uh, are a little more dazzling at first glance. I'm the light of the world. There's something glorious about that. I'm the good shepherd. There's something that that stirs our hearts about those phrases. But I am the door. It's a little strange. And so we're going to unpack that this morning. And hopefully it won't seem quite so strange a few moments from now. Let me pray for us and, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Jesus, there is much at stake this morning in our understanding and embracing of what you mean when you say, I'm the door of the sheep. It will influence how we wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It will influence that which we ultimately pursue for hope, for security, for life. And so I pray that in these coming moments that that which we unpack through your very word, Lord, would become material in our arsenal this week for preaching the gospel to ourselves. We are all going to encounter the need for security and the need for abundant life in some way, shape, or form, and we will be tempted to pursue it elsewhere in other ways and other places besides you. And so I pray that we would see the beauty of what you offer us this morning in this declaration that you make here in John chapter 10. Would you not only open our minds to understand, but would you open our hearts, uh, would you stir our hearts with the deepest of affections that are rooted in the truth of who you are, so that we might walk away changed. We lift these things up in your name, Jesus, the door of the sheep. Amen. So as we pick up this story here in John chapter 10, we're only a couple chapters past Jesus' declaration that we looked at last week, I am the light of the world. In fact, there's only one thing that's happened in John's gospel account between that declaration, I am the light of the world, and the declaration that we're going to look at this morning. One thing that's happened, namely the healing of a blind man. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man um, blind from birth. And, And ironically, as this man's sight becomes clearer, the the Pharisees' blindness becomes increasingly darker. In fact, in John chapter 9, the Pharisees declare Jesus to be a sinner, which is bad enough. By the time we get midway through chapter 10, many of them will declare Jesus to be a demon-possessed lunatic. And so the question begs to be answered, what is it that the Pharisees find so offensive about these first few verses in John chapter 10, which is what we're going to look at This morning and next week, we're going to seek to answer that question. And really, the dialogue begins back in chapter 9, verse 35. The Pharisees don't like uh, what this recently healed blind man has to say about Jesus. And so they cast him out of the synagogue. And we pick up the story in verse 35 of chapter 9, where we're told, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is asking this man whom he's recently healed where he places his trust. In other words, am I the object of your faith, Jesus is asking. And the man answered, and who is he, sir, this son of man, that I may believe in him? He, he wants to believe. He's lost all confidence in the, the religious authorities who have just cast him out of the synagogue, by the way. He's just trying to put all the pieces together at this point. 
And Jesus answered him, verse 37, you have seen him, this son of man, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus declares himself to be the appropriate object of this man's faith in this moment. He's saying, it's me that you're meant to believe in. It's me you're meant to put your trust in. And look at how he responds. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. (laughs) No spiritual journey. You know, it's just like in this moment, instantaneous allegiance. And, and not just belief in the form of intellectual assent, but, but that word worship means to fall prostrate before Jesus. And, and now, in verse 39, Jesus begins to explain what the miracle of giving physical sight to this blind man was really about. It's ultimately a parable about spiritual sight and, and blindness. Jesus goes on to say in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, and those who that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came to illumine the hearts of those who will acknowledge their spiritual blindness, that they're spiritually impoverished. But, but my presence also has a way of hardening the hearts of those who think they see. It's what the Puritans used to say, same sun that wax hardens the clay. That, that this same Jesus Uh, When you encounter him, one of two things is going to happen. Either your heart's going to become more hardened as as you come face to face with who he truly is, or you're going to find your heart melted by the beauty and reality of of That those who bring a poverty of spirit to the feet of Jesus are those to whom he gives spiritual sight. Verse 40 goes on to say, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Which sounds like a a question rooted in humility, but it's not. It's a question rooted in arrogance on their part. They see themselves as being quite upper class in spirit. And so Jesus says to them, verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if you were willing to acknowledge your own need for illumination, you wouldn't be guilty of unbelief. But, But now Jesus says that you say, we see your guilt remains. In other words, you're satisfied with the light as you know it, the light of the law. The true light stands in front, of, in front of you, but you don't think you need me to brighten up your darkness. And thus you remain in darkness, guilty. It's, it's in some sense what the author of Proverbs was, was saying in uh, chapter 26, verse 12. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The Pharisees saw themselves as wise in their own eyes. And Jesus tells them that they're blind and, and guilty. Chapter 10 is, is simply a continuation of this very same conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's not, it's not a, a new uh, literary unit, so to speak. And so as we dive into verse 1, Jesus is carrying on this conversation with the Pharisees. And he says this. Look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. In these first five verses, we're going to come back and visit these first five verses next week because they actually set the stage for both of Jesus' I am statements in chapter 10. I am the door of the sheep and, and I'm the good shepherd. It, it's, a, 
It's a word picture that Jesus is presenting the Pharisees with. And it's a word picture that includes a lot of shepherding language, right? He's talking about sheep pens and and doors or gates to the sheep pen and flocks of sheep and shepherds and gatekeepers or watchmen and strangers, thieves and, and robbers, It makes a lot of sense that Jesus would use this kind of uh, imagery in this first century Middle Eastern shepherding culture. In in that context, sheep were, they were held in a pen known as a sheepfold. It was this kind of courtyard that would surround uh, either one or several houses. And and the sheepfold was surrounded by walls on all four sides that were meant to keep out thieves and, and predators. And the way sheep would get in and out was through this one small passageway, this one small door, this one small gate. And the sheep would stay in the sheepfold at night for protection. And during the day, they would go out and they would graze in the light of day. And the families who who kept their various flocks in the sheepfold would hire a, a gatekeeper, a watchman, to guard the door, to guard the gate at night so that predators and thieves could, could not make their way in to get access to the sheep. And Jesus uses this word picture to say something both about himself and about the wickedness of the Pharisees. What Jesus is essentially saying is if someone wants to to wound or steal a sheep, they don't enter through the gate. They don't enter through, through the door. The gatekeeper would spot them if they tried to do so. So they have to find another way in, those looking to wound or steal the sheep. In contrast, the shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And the gatekeeper also knows the shepherd, and thus he can come and go as he pleases through this gate, through this door, because he's ultimately out to care for the sheep, not to harm them, not to wound them, not to steal them. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't unpack the implications of what he's saying just yet, though if the Pharisees had eyes to see, they, they'd begin to pick up on a few of the context clues here, but they're blind, and so we're told in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Notice the irony. The Pharisees, as sheep, are standing before the good shepherd Jesus, but they can't hear his voice. They don't know his voice. When he speaks, they don't recognize him as the good shepherd, but rather as a threat. Because they don't have ears to hear, Jesus goes on to say something a little bit more explicit as you move into verses 7 and 8. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. If you go back to the Old Testament, particularly the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel verse 34, the Lord rebukes the shepherds, the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day for failing to both provide for and protect the sheep, the flock, the people. Ezekiel 34 says this, this is God speaking. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. In other words... God's saying here in Ezekiel 34, all you care about is yourself. You don't don't treat the sheep with love and care. They don't flourish under your shepherding. And Jesus makes the same point here about the Pharisees in his day. All you care about is yourself. You don't 
Uh, you don't treat the sheep with love and care. They don't flourish under your leadership, under your shepherding. Point in case, they've just thrown this blind man out of the synagogue. Going back to Ezekiel 34, with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Chapter 9 of John's gospel account and chapter 10 are deeply interconnected. We'll take a look at Jesus as shepherd next week in contrast to the religious elite. But, but this week is about this, this declaration, I'm the door of the sheep. Jesus goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what does Jesus mean when he says that? When he says, I'm the door of the sheep, what are the implications of that? That's a weird way of describing yourself, right? It's kind of like when he called himself bread in chapter 6. What are we supposed to pick up on that? A couple of things. First, he's declaring that he is the only hope of salvation. He says, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It's this exclusive language. He doesn't say, I am a door. He says, I am the door. Very similar to another of Jesus' I am statements that we'll look at a couple weeks from now. In chapter 14, verse 6, when we get there, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or going back to last week, uh, when Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, you recall if you were here, he said, he said to the Pharisees, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In other words, if you don't know me, you don't know God. Jesus said back in chapter 8. He's declaring that there are not multiple ways to heaven, that there are not multiple paths up to the top of the mountain, so to speak, that he's the only one handing out tickets to the new heaven and earth. He's declaring that he is the small passageway, the small door, the small gate into the sheepfold, into the kingdom of God. What an incredibly offensive thing to say in our culture, right? The, the U.S. is becoming more and more pluralistic by the day. It's considered intolerant to declare that your religion is the only religion. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is no other gate. I, I'm the one gate leading into the sheepfold, into the kingdom of God. Again, going back to that C.S. Lewis quote, we've been talking about it week in and week out throughout this series. You, you can't deny that Jesus is God and yet still call him a good teacher. He doesn't leave space for that. He declares himself to exclusively be the way into the fold, into the flock, into the, the kingdom of heaven. If he's not divine, then he's a, a liar or a crazy person for saying stuff like this. He says, I am the gate. A couple things to, to think about with that word picture. If it's true, if it's true that there's only one gate, one passageway, one door into the kingdom of God, namely Jesus Christ, then moralism is nothing more than trying to carve another hole into the wall of the sheepfold in your own strength. The problem is that the wall is impenetrable. God's protecting his sheep. He didn't create a penetrable wall. No amount of carving, no amount of clawing our way into the kingdom through good works will get us inside of that wall. And so moralism won't work. And, and yes, that's for the non-Christian in this room this morning, but it's also for us as Christians. How, how silly for us to abandon the gate, to go walk over to a, 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 a piece of the wall that makes up the sheepfold and try to start digging in order to impress God and get our way in to his good graces and favor. It doesn't work. Moralism doesn't work. 
And if it's true that there's only one gate, one passageway, one door into the kingdom of God, namely Jesus Christ, then it's also true that materialism won't work. Materialism is nothing more than parading our carving tools before God, to which he looks at and says, I made all of those in the first place. I own all of it. I let you steward some of it grace, but it's ultimately all mine. No amount of possessions, no matter how expensive or shiny, will impress God enough to get us inside of the wall. And so materialism won't work. Let me say it this way. If we pursue any other means into the sheepfold, so to speak, into the kingdom of God than Jesus, then the Father is going to look at us and ask this question. Why are you belittling my gate? Why are you belittling my gate? I gave you a perfectly sufficient gate, and you choose to complain about the fact that there aren't multiple gates. The fact that there's a gate at all is God's grace to us. The fact that there's one door, one passageway, one gate, namely Jesus Christ, is God's kindness to us. If you go back to the garden in Genesis 3, in the wake of sin, you remember the story. Adam and Eve uh, are exiled from God's garden sanctuary of Eden. And, and God places a cherubim with a sword to keep them out of the garden. That there's a gate established, you might say, separating God from man. We see cherubim separating God from man in another place in Scripture. If you fast forward to the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle uh, was divided into two sections, the holy place and then the most holy place. And uh, the holy place was, was where the priests would perform their daily duties. Um, the most holy place was entered only once a year and only by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He would go in. He would offer incense and he would uh, sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals, both for his own sin and the sins of the people, uh, appeasing the wrath of God. A little detail that oftentimes gets, oftentimes gets overlooked with the tabernacle is that when the veil, when the curtain was created that separated the holy place from the most holy place, cherubim were embroidered on that curtain as if to remind the Israelites that they couldn't enter because of their sin. It was pointing back to the Garden of Eden, man separated from God with cherubim standing in the way. If you fast forward the story to the crucifixion of Jesus, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Curtain was torn, right? From top to bottom, separated in two, cherubim, gone. It's the beauty of the gospel that when Jesus' body was torn, so was the veil separating us from God's presence. That Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way back into Eden. Jesus is the way back into the presence of God. And here in John chapter 10, he's declaring that there is no other gate, that he is a sufficient gate. More to come on that in a couple weeks when we do get to John chapter 14, verse 6. But let me keep going with this with this word picture, this idea of Jesus as the door of the sheep, because I think there are a couple other sweet things that come out of this declaration for us. Jesus is most certainly declaring that he's the hope of salvation. Make no mistake about that. But he's also saying, I'm the sole means by which people can experience true life. Look again at, at verses 9 and 10. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In verse 9, Jesus uses this language of going in and out. Go in is to experience safety and security within the sheepfold. To go out is to experience flourishing among the blades of green grass. What Jesus is essentially saying is, 
You can venture in and out of the gate of religious elitism, of moralism, but it will not provide you security, nor will it provide you a flourishing life. There is no security in what the Pharisees are offering. It's incredibly risky to stake your future eternally on your own goodness, on your own moral record. It doesn't work. Again, how do you know if you've done enough? How do you know when you've crossed that threshold? There's no security in that. It's incredibly risky. You'll always wonder, even up to the point of your deathbed, if your good works outweigh your bad works and if God really loves you and has embraced you. And there's also no green grass in what the Pharisees are offering. There's, there's no sustenance or satisfaction in living a life of moralism. Right? It, cre- it creates a swinging pendulum uh, between pride and despair. Pride when you think you're accomplishing uh, what you think goodness is, and despair when you think you failed at it. Right? Read the Pharisees in the gospel accounts. None of them are happy, are they? They're the most miserable people in the entire storyline. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you can't flourish when you embrace this life of religious elitism. It doesn't work. But with Jesus, we get both. We get security and we get flourishing. Coming back to the image of a door, aren't you glad that your house has a door? You ever thought about that? We just kind of take it for granted. My house has a door. It doesn't just have a giant cutout that you can walk in and out of. Like I have a door, I have a lock. Some of you, we have alarm systems. There are beautiful things about a door. Two in particular. One, it keeps you safe. If your door, if you didn't have a door and only had an open cutout, most of us would not sleep well at night. Even in low crime Peachtree City, like you just wouldn't sleep. A door helps to keep the bad guys out. And so does Jesus. It's not that he's saying that we won't experience suffering in this world, that we won't encounter evil in this world. The world is broken. It it won't be until he returns to set everything right that brokenness and evil and suffering will be eradicated forever. But rather what Jesus is saying is that the enemy will never snatch you out of his hand. That the door himself stands in the way. It's pretty incredible. Uh, as, as a dad of two little girls, you can imagine where my mind went with this passage. I'm thinking about future suitors. Right? If, you, if you have a little boy in the toddler or preschool room, listen up. You can, you can tell your kid this on the ride home because this might matter a, a decade from now if you and I are still around. The way I view future suitors uh, with respect to my daughters in their adolescence is this. If you don't come through me in pursuit of my girls, as far as I'm concerned, you're a thief. You're a predator. You got to come through me in order to get to my two little girls. What Jesus is saying here is, is very similar. He, he is, he's saying some pretty incredible things in terms of security this morning for you as a Christian. That the enemy is going to have to get through Jesus to get to you. It's not over my dead body, Jesus is saying. It's over my resurrected body. Jesus says, that ain't happening. It's not going to happen. There's security in Christ. And not just with respect to to salvation, but, but listen, if you're a Christian, everything can get stripped away from you. It goes back to what we talked about in the book of Philippians. And yet, you get Jesus, so you win. There's eternal security for the Christian because Christ is our greatest gain and no one can rob us of Jesus Christ. Second, 
Not only does the door keep us safe, but it provides a means to flourish. Right? Imagine if you were just walled up and couldn't leave your house on the flip side. There's, there's something about escaping our home that allows us to flourish. And coming back to my kids just making it into every illustration these days. But uh, when, when they were born, my wife had to have C-sections both times because you've seen our kids' cheeks, many of you. There's no other way that they're getting into the world. And so uh, we were holed up for several weeks with each of their births. And cabin fever started to set in, right? It, 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 there's that thing where you've been in your home for several weeks because you think that if your kids breathe in a speck of dust, they're going to contract the bubonic plague, and so you don't leave for a little while. But then when you finally get to that place where you, you feel like you can and the sun hits you, there's just something glorious about that, right? We were, we were meant for security, but we were also meant to flourish, We're meant to step out into the world. There's safety within, but there's pasture beyond. Jesus says, I'm the gateway to security, but I'm also the gateway to abundant life, to green grass. And so one final question this morning that I think begs to be answered, what is that? What's abundant life? What's green grass? Because that's been defined a number of different ways in Christian circles. And so I find it incredibly helpful to to look for Traces of of this word picture in the scriptures elsewhere. Namely, one of the most famous passages of scripture. Many of you have read this before. Psalm 23. The psalmist tells us, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you see that? Green grass and still waters are associated with, equated with soul restoration, with being led in paths of righteousness, that that Jesus restores the human soul. He satisfies the human soul. He changes our hearts so that we long for what God longs for. And as he does that, God is glorified and, and we experience even more joy. And Jesus is not only the shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness, we'll look at that next week, but he's also the gateway, the door to that kind of life, a life in which we find our hearts more aligned with the heart of the God who made us, that there is security and there is soul satisfaction found in Jesus. He is the gateway to that life. It's quite amazing to me when I think about this series it really is. These I am statements collectively, they really do function as this multifaceted jewel. So that last week we could have a good old-fashioned hoedown singing of the glory of Jesus as the light of the world and celebrate that. And yet this week we could come in and just lay down in, a, in fine pasture, so to speak, and rest in Christ. We can celebrate and we can rest. And find our souls satisfied in him. That there's something beautiful about each one of these declarations that Jesus makes. That offers us something unique. Something different in light of who he is. It's really quite beautiful. And so if you come in this morning and you're tired. Because you've been clawing after security and anything and everything else besides Jesus. Because you've been pursuing abundant life in anything and everything besides Jesus. He offers you the opportunity to rest this morning, to to come around from the wall that you've been clawing at and to come to the gate and enter in and to enjoy that. And so as we we move into a time of reflection over the course of 
the next few moments together, just a few things to consider. If you're not a, a Christian, the, the question I would put before you is this. What do you do with, with Jesus' declaration of exclusivity this morning? He, he declares that we need saving, and he declares that he is the gateway to salvation. That if we enter by him, verse 9, we will be saved. If we don't enter by him, we won't be saved. And so my invitation to you would be to come to him this morning. The one who, who tore the curtain separating God from man. That he lived the life we could never live, a perfect sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. The one who, who bore our sins and was punished in our place. Jesus Christ who rose from the, the grave victoriously conquering our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He declares that he and he alone is the way back into Eden, back into the presence of God. He is the hope of eternal security. He is the, the promise of soul satisfaction. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to do what the blind man did in John chapter 9. To, to declare, Lord, I believe, and to fall at his feet in worship. And if you are a Christian, a few things that we have an opportunity to reflect on in the coming moments together. We have an opportunity, one, to worship the God who made a way where there was no way who going back to, to last week has given us eyes to actually see and savor Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? Like, you, you don't have to, to claw for God's favor. We can celebrate that this morning. We can rest in that, especially if, you're, if your default is to go back to trying to earn God's love. You ever find yourself doing that? Especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt. You probably have that tendency. If you're gonna veer off the gospel path, it's gonna be this, this attempt to now try to earn what's already been earned for you in Christ. You don't have to do that. You can celebrate that Jesus has done everything necessary to restore you to God. We also have an opportunity as Christians to praise our protector, the one who stands in the way of Satan and his army of darkness, the one who promises that that the devil and his, his army of hell will never snatch us out of his hand. That's incredibly good news, Christian. The enemy is going to have to get through Jesus to get to you. And Jesus says, that ain't happening. Let's celebrate the security that we have in him. And let's repent of, of all the ways that we seek security apart from him this morning. And turn back to him yet again. But we also have an opportunity to celebrate the one not only who offers us security, but also abundant life. That it's Jesus who, who restores, who satisfies the human soul. And he is. He's committed to the process of aligning our hearts with the very heart of God for his glory and our joy. And so we have an opportunity to, to celebrate the, the promise of abundant life that's found in him. And, and again, to repent of those things that we turn to in the pursuit of abundant life elsewhere apart from him. That he is the gateway to his eternal security and eternal soul satisfaction. Do we believe that? If we do, we have an incredible opportunity in the coming moments together as a church to rest in him and find our souls restored. And so I invite you to do that. Maybe the best thing you can do for the next few minutes is just stop and take in a deep breath of gospel air and just let it out. Just exhale and go, thank you, Jesus, for being the gate. And then we'll move into a time of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood, which is both a reminder of and a rejoicing in the good news that Jesus has made a way where there is no way. And he is the hope of security and soul satisfaction.